the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Amin Tais. This is our second episode on the subject of Islamic law. Today, we will start a brief journey through the history of Islamic law. But before we do that, it is worth stressing here again, as with other subjects we covered earlier in the podcast, that we lack sources from the earliest period of what came to be known as the religion of Islam. As a result, we are at the mercy of much later sources that might be drawing pictures shaped much more by their own contexts than that of the early communities. So we need to approach these later sources carefully, not because they intended to mislead us or to lie, but because they were themselves limited by their own needs, hopes, fears, etc. And because some voices that were part of the debates are absent today, and if traces of these voices survived in the sources of their adversaries, they are likely distorted. So just as we ought to be careful not to impose our own contextual limitations today on the historical periods we are discussing, we also must be careful not to let Muslim constructions from the 9th or 10th or 11th centuries blind us to the messiness of the construction that they underwent. This is why I insisted in a much earlier episode that we must make a clear difference between uh, the world of the Qur'an, the world of the earliest community, and between the worlds of quote-unquote Islam much later, i.e. the worlds of the various theological and legal and spiritual directions that social actors, human beings, communities took in changing circumstances. And I do not mean this in any apologetic sense. I'm not trying to say that the world of the Qur'an is better or that the uh, quote-unquote Islamic worlds constructed later are less valuable not at all. I mean this in a strict historical sense. There is a difference between the discourse of the Qur'an and its audience on one hand, and the discourses called Islamic and their audiences in different circumstances at different times on the other hand. I also do not mean that there is no connection between Qur'anic discourse and later Islamic discourses. This would be untenable at many levels. 
Now, without getting into complex discussions, it is enough to say that the Islamic discourses take the Qur'an in particular directions using particular methodologies. In other words, they make conscious and unconscious choices as to how to approach the Qur'an as we saw with the early theological debates in previous episodes. To return to the subject of law, what does the Qur'an say about law? Within the Mus'haf, the written corpus, out of about 6,000 total verses, only between 250 to 500 verses can be considered to have some kind of legal import. In other words, the Qur'an is not primarily a law book. But the Qur'an does contain legal pronouncements. If we accept the traditional Muslim division of Qur'anic verses to Meccan and Medinan, most of what we can consider legal belongs to the Medinan period, the period in which Muhammad uh, was organizing a community. We find verses dealing with inheritance, marriage and divorce, but also verses dealing with dietary restrictions and issues of worship. In addition, there are verses setting punishments for particular offenses like fornication or theft. Here, it's important to highlight that the Quranic legal pronouncements are not completely new. In fact, they are very much part of the Arab and Near Eastern traditions and laws. The Quran maintains some of these, adapts some, and bans or rejects others in order to seemingly bring them within its drive to establish the oneness of God and to infuse a moral sense into the organization of this community made up of the immediate audiences of the Quranic message. By the time we get to the Arab conquests of the larger Near East, we are already dealing with different circumstances. You might recall from an earlier episode that upon conquering the major Near Eastern centers, the Arabs built a number of garrison cities. In these garrison cities, the conquering soldiers and their families resided in order to stay apart and not mix with local populations. These local populations were allowed to follow their own laws and practice their own religions as long as they paid a tax that we discussed earlier called Al-Jizya. But for the Arab inhabitants of the garrison cities, there was a need to establish regulations and to maintain order. This was done in a rather informal or still not very methodical way. The political leadership appointed men of repute to play the role of arbitrators in disputes. But these men also played the role of both 
administrators and what is called qasas storytellers meaning that they were skilled at both educating and entertaining people through edifying stories about the past about the prophets etc for the purpose of our subject here it is important to note that these arbitrators ruled according to their best judgment or in arabic ra'i but in relation to the established sunan sunan is the plural of sunna which means exemplary conduct normative practice so in some of the early sources we find the notion of sunna attached to important individuals so there was the notion of sunna of the prophets but also the sunna of abu bakr the sunna of umar the sunna of uthman etc we will see that in later periods the term sunna would be almost exclusively applied to muhammad so that by sunna it will become understood that it is the normative practice of the prophet but in this early period the sunna is the precedent established by one of the important leaders of the community and this was connected to the term i mentioned a minute earlier ra'i that can be translated as considered personal opinion the ra'i was then personal judgment but it was at some level connected to a personal understanding of the established normative sunan there are a number of terms that might have been used in conjunction with the terms of sunna and ra'i this include ilm literally knowledge there's also the term ijtihad literally effort which was sometimes used in combination with ra'i as ijtihad ar-ra'i which connotes intellectual effort Uh, making an intellectual effort to reach a personal opinion there is also the term ijma which means consensus all these terms were related but were not yet used in a systematic fashion we will see in future episodes how as islamic legal thinking develops these words would gain technical meanings and intense debates will rise around them but in the earlier period the process of legal thinking and the use of these terms were fluid one could say that there was a frame flowing from the established sunan or sunnas that guided the use of ra'i or ijtihad ra'i the intellectual effort to reach a personal opinion and that if some sort of ijma or consensus evolved around the ra'i of prominent individuals it would itself be sunna a sunna to be in turn considered in future uses of ra'i now remember that we are talking about a growing empire and so locality matters the community will grow and evolve and muslim identity 
will be drawn in clearer terms by the next generation of religious scholars. These scholars would take the discussions of law into more sophisticated directions in various centers of the empire from Arabia to Syria to Iraq to Egypt and beyond. That's all I have for you today. I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.